Hey guys, welcome back to this week's episode of Crime Couch. I'm your host, Kaylee, and today we're going to be talking about a case that's gotten a lot of attention recently in the media again. We're going to be talking about Lyle and Eric Menendez, the two brothers who caused a craze around the world and who brutally murdered their parents back in the 80s. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. On a, on a large one. Lyle and Eric Menendez grew up in the suburbs of Beverly Hills with their parents, Jose and Mary Kitty Menendez. They seemed to be living the perfect American dream during the 1980s. Jose was born in Cuba and migrated to America in the 1950s and eventually earned a college degree in swimming. He then later met Kitty, who was a beauty pageant queen, and once they got married, they started rising to the top very quickly. Jose became a very well-known entertainment executive and became the head of RCA Records and played a big part in signing brands such as Duran Duran and the Eurythmics. The entire family became very successful very quickly. Their house was even located on the most exclusive block of Beverly Hills and was once owned by none other than Michael Jackson and Elton John. At the time that they were living in Los Angeles, they had two sons, Lyle, who was 21 at the time, and Eric, who was 18, and they were just as successful as their parents. Lyle was a star tennis player who was attending Princeton and seemed as though he was destined for a career in business, just like his father, that he openly looked up to very highly. Eric was an even better tennis player who ended up being nationally ranked within his age group. It is almost as if they had no choice but to be successful because of how much their father pushed them as kids. Jose was known as the driven father who wanted to work his children to the bone and everything under the sun. A quote from the brother's former swim coach that was found in the Los Angeles Times states, It seemed like Jose was so competitive, he was doing everything he could to try to make them better. Unfortunately, Jose was so overbearing when it came to his sons being successful that it had the opposite effect on them. Eric struggled from low self-confidence because all he ever heard from his father was how he wasn't good enough and constantly needed to improve. 
Eric, only a teenager at the time, began to run around with some delinquents in Los Angeles and got himself into trouble with crimes such as burglary. And although Lyle was enrolled in Princeton, he ended up getting expelled for a year for plagiarism, which caused a lot of trouble over the next few years. On August 20th, 1989, Lyle, the older brother, placed a call to 911 and frantically told an officer that someone had shot their parents. Eric and Lyle had just returned home after going to see a movie, and they found their parents in their Beverly Hills home, unidentifiable after suffering 15 shots from a 12-gauge shotgun. The crime scene was so brutal that at first, the police thought it could have been a mob hit. Due to this, the early investigation focused mainly on many business rivals that Jose may have had throughout his career. The night that the murders occurred, both brothers had planned to go to the movies, but first had to stop at their house to pick up Eric's ID. Upon arriving is when they made the gruesome discovery. They called 911, and once police arrived, they found Eric sobbing in the front yard. Although it may have looked like he was expressing utter sadness and grief for losing his parents, in the following months, neither son really acted like someone who had just lost their parents to a gruesome murder. They actually started living life as if they won the lottery. Jose left the brothers a hefty inheritance of about $14 million, and the brothers spent an estimated $700,000 of his fortune in just the few short months following the murders. Lyle purchased a Rolex, a Porsche, loaded up on lots of clothing, and even bought a restaurant back in Princeton where he had been living even before the murders happened. Eric was a little more relaxed and ended up settling for a Jeep Wrangler and a $40,000 investment into a rock concert that never ended up happening. They continued to live a lavish lifestyle and take vacations thinking they had more money coming to them. There was reportedly a $5 million life insurance policy on their father, but they never ended up collecting that money. On August 24th, only a day before the parents' funeral, Lyle dropped about $15,000 on three Rolex watches, which some witnesses would later testify about. The brothers both moved out of their family's Beverly Hills mansion and stayed in a series of expensive hotels before finally leasing condos on the water in Marina del Rey. Their adjoining apartments had lots of room for parties and movie nights with friends. Eric decided to forego attending UCLA and instead hired a tennis coach for $60,000 a year in hopes of going pro. He practiced for up to 10 hours a day and flew to the Middle East to compete. Meanwhile, Lyle returned to Princeton but didn't attend classes. Instead, he focused on different business pursuits and shopped in New Jersey and New York areas. He also hired a team of bodyguards to accompany him on his shopping excursions and he ended up purchasing a popular student restaurant, Chuck's Spring Street Cafe, for $550,000 and renamed it Mr. Buffalo's after its spicy wings. He hoped to turn it into a franchise one day and stated, it was one of my mother's delights that I pursue a small restaurant chain and serve healthy food with friendly service, Lyle told the student newspaper in an interview. It was the first business under the umbrella of a company Lyle called Menendez Investment Enterprises. He hired two friends at Princeton to help oversee and advise on his investments, as they later testified and foresaw a portfolio of restaurants, real estate, and like their father, the entertainment industry. They dreamed of athletic success, musical success, financial success, and they were even interested in politics. Eric once said, 
My brother wants to become president of the US and I want to be a senator and be with the people of Cuba. The brothers didn't spend all their six months of freedom shopping and dreaming out loud though. They also attended therapy sessions with Dr. Jeremy Ozeal. It was these sessions that led to their eventual arrest. Eric started getting into more trouble with the law and ended up getting caught in a string of burglaries. The court required him to go to court-ordered therapy, and this is where he met Dr. Jeremy Ozeal. This therapist reached out to Eric and Lyle following the murders. After many appointments, Eric soon confessed to murdering his parents. Ozeal then confided in his mistress, who would later play a huge part in this case. The therapy sessions continued as normal, and eventually, Ozeal got both brothers on tape admitting that they killed their parents. But according to Eric, it was so they could put their mother out of misery. Lyle made it very clear in his confession that they were both in on it. Now, Ozeal and his mistress named Smith also had a rocky relationship, and she claimed he was controlling and abusive. After he allegedly attacked her one day, Smith contacted the Beverly police to reveal that the Menendez brothers confessed to their parents' murder. She even had an audio tape of the confessions. Lyle ended up being arrested shortly after, but Eric was in Israel at the time, but flew back home to LA where he ended up turning himself in. One of the biggest debates in this case was figuring out whether the tapes of the confessions fell under the rule of doctor-patient confidentiality versus being admissible evidence in court due to the significance of their confessions. This debate about the tapes took over two years with lawsuits and appeals flying back and forth between the lawyers and the prosecution team. Eventually, the Supreme Court of California ruled that two of the three tapes were eligible to be used in trial, including one that contained Lyle's admission of guilt. Both boys were indicted on December 7, 1992 and tried separately for their murder. The jury in Eric's case deadlocked on January 10, 1994, and the jury in Lyle's case deadlocked two weeks later. The jury declared a mistrial. It wasn't until April 17, 1996, that a third and final jury found the brothers guilty for murder. The whole process took nearly seven years. The trial began in 1993 and was broadcasted on the news network called Court TV that was relatively new at the time. The point of this news channel was to essentially turn the legal system into an entertainment and sports hybrid. Court TV carried not only the trial, but endless hours of coverage before and after each day's proceedings, helping fuel a nation's obsession with a case that had all the elements of a great primetime soap opera, a rich family torn apart by a scandal, two handsome and mysterious young men, a grisly crime, and a psychodrama galore. Unable to profess their innocence, Lyle and Eric instead claimed that their father's reign of terror went far beyond emotional abuse and the pressure of high expectations. Jose, they said, had molested them since childhood, a claim filed with graphic descriptions that shocked the nation and split friends and family members. Their lawyer, Leslie Abramson, who became a star during the trial, argued that the two were acting in self-defense after growing up in such a violent and traumatizing home. Lyle gave a graphic testimony, and years later, a cousin actually told ABC News that she believed his story because he'd told her similar things when he was a child. The defense also attacked Kitty as a husk of a woman, an alcoholic, drug addict, broken wife, and useless mother who was devastated by Jose's many affairs. The story was nearly impossible to be sustained in court since the alleged abuser was dead, and by the time the brothers opened up about this abuse, 
The public had been hating them and eating up the spoiled rich boy's narrative for years. Even the brothers' weepy descriptions of their father's abuse earned them mockery and a spot on Saturday Night Live back in October of 1993. The cast imitated their smoothly flat voices and the way their faces would crumple into tears. The mere appearance of host of the time, John Malkovich, wearing the classic royal blue sweater on the stand was enough shorthand for a studio audience to begin laughing. The second trial took place in 1995 and was far less sensational, as the judge did not allow TV cameras into the courthouse. Instead, people still interested in the Menendez brothers' fate had to wait for written news accounts of the events. Oddly enough, Judalon Smith testified for the defense this time, insisting Dr. Ozeal had manipulated the brothers into confessing. The effort fell short and both Lyle and Eric were convicted of first-degree murder in 1996. They were sentenced to life without parole and they were sent to separate prisons until 2018 when they were reunited shortly. Each brother had gotten married in prison to women on the outside. Eric married his pen pal, Tammy Sackerman, in 1999, while Lyle has found two women willing to marry him, Anna Erickson, a former model who divorced him after a year when she found out he had been writing to other women, and then Rebecca Sneed, one of the women he was writing to, a journalist who he wed in 2003. Even now, 30 years since the murders first took place, the brothers' crimes continue to fascinate and perplex the media. There have been multiple TV shows, movies, miniseries, and documentaries about the murders, and it has been spoofed throughout the years as well. The case closed a decade of me-first capitalism and ushered in a new era of true crime hype, which is stronger than ever. As of now, they have served 31 years in prison, with most of that time being spent apart from each other, only being reunited once recently at a prison in San Diego. They have used all of their appeal processes and their prospects of a new trial have dwindled. For them, life inside prison walls hasn't changed all too much, but out in the real world, social media sites like TikTok appear to have garnered the power to create actual change in the social justice system. There's a New York Times article that details the mass following and attention the Menendez brothers have gained on TikTok recently. Personally, when I scroll through TikTok, I've had a lot of the Menendez brothers videos pop up, and I think that's because my phone knows that I've been typing about this podcast. When you type in Menendez brothers into the search bar, the screen floods with hundreds of videos. And on top of there being videos about the Menendez brothers, there's lots of young looking girls on the screen talking about how attractive they are and talking about how they need to be served justice. In a matter of months, the Menendez brothers went from being an old tale of true crime to a viral social media sensation. Today's TikTok activists may be teenagers, but they believe they know what they're talking about. And a few million likes may serve them justice to prove it. Serial killers do on a small scale what governments do on a large one. On a, on a large one.